This morning, we're continuing our study in Acts, and we're going to be in chapters 24 to 26. These chapters cover the trial of Paul that occurred in Jerusalem. Join me as I read from the Holy Scriptures this morning from those chapters. Five days later, the high priest, Ananias, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusations, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and before man. If this trial of Paul took place today, he might be represented by our own in-house trial lawyer, Al Hassler. And it might look and sound something like this. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. My name is Al Hassler, and I'm here today to represent the Apostle Paul. Now, some of you may know him as Saul of Tarsus. That was his name some 30 years ago when he was living in Jerusalem, and he was a Pharisee. And something happened. He became a follower of the way. He became a follower of Jesus Christ. And because of that, these charges have been brought against him. And these are as serious as charges can get. He is charged with stirring up false religion, a sect. Both of these charges carry with them the death penalty. So my client is facing the most serious charges you can face on this earth. Now I want to give you a brief overview of what will happen this morning. First, we'll introduce an exhibit, exhibit one called the Bible. Some of you may have heard about it. Second, we're going to have the high priest, Ananias, here to testify. And then two other witnesses will testify on behalf of my client, Paul. And that is how we will proceed. So let's first start with the exhibit number one, the Bible. And I had the court reporter mark this as exhibit number one. In our 
jurisdiction, the law says and has always said that in order for a document or a book to be introduced into evidence, it must be considered generally a reliable authority in the jurisdiction. And that's the question we have to ask in order to get it admitted. Is it a generally reliable authority? And I would answer an emphatic yes. First of all, the Bible is the most read book in the history of mankind. It is the most produced, the most printed, the most known book in the history of the world. That alone should authenticate it as reliable. But literally millions of people, if not billions of people around the world, have read this book and will testify that as they applied it in their life, their life was dramatically changed. And the reliability and the authority of this exhibit has been demonstrated by billions of changed lives. So that's the second argument I would make. The third argument I would make is that the Jews who are bringing this charge, Ananias the high priest and the other Jews, they believe that this book is the very word of the living God. As Pharisees, they're required to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Many of them have memorized the entire Old Testament. So they themselves, I don't think, would make any objection to the introduction of this exhibit. In addition, it is unique among all books. Other books have human authors. This book alone, exhibit one alone, claims to be the very revelation of the God of the universe, the God who created the universe. And so he is all-wise and all-knowing. He knows everything. Of course it's reliable, and we have many claims within the Scripture. For instance, one of the prophets, Joel, in his first chapter of his book, Joel chapter 1, verse 1, I think we have that verse here, he says that the word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Bethuel. Over and over, the Bible claims that the man who is setting forth the revelation of God was simply being informed by God. He was setting forth the very words of the God of the universe. This is the only book that makes that claim. Even the sacred text of the Islamic folks says that they believe that the angel Gabriel dictated the Quran to the prophet Muhammad. They don't even say it came directly from God. This alone makes it unique. My final argument for why this exhibit should be introduced into evidence is simply this. For hundreds and hundreds of years, in courtrooms all over the world, when someone comes into the courtroom to give testimony, they raise their right hand to swear an oath that they will tell the truth. And what do they do with their left hand? They place it on the Bible. If it is reliable enough to be the book upon which people swear an oath to tell the truth, I submit to you that it is reliable enough to be considered a reliable authority in our jurisdiction. I made these arguments earlier in the morning before you members of the jury were here, and the judge agreed with me. And so the Bible has been admitted as exhibit number one. Now, let's get to the charge that Paul has stirred up riots around the world. The reason this is such a serious charge is the Romans governed the world at this point. 
And they say that anyone who stirs up riots or revolution should be put to death. And the question becomes, is that a serious and is that a reasonable charge against my client? And I would suggest to you the answer is no. You see, the Apostle Paul went around the known world, the entire Roman Empire almost, and established churches. He explained what had happened to him and that he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And many people put their faith in Christ and formed churches. And then the Apostle Paul would move on. And often he would have to send letters to these various churches in various cities, reminding them and explaining to them how they should live what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of the way. And in those letters, over and over, I could show you dozens and dozens of examples. He exhorts and commands his people, actually it's God commanding them through the Apostle Paul, to obey government authority, to live peacefully. I'm giving, I'll give you one such example. My client wrote a letter to the church in Rome, the city of Rome, and it said, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That is not someone trying to stir up a riot. But he goes even further in chapter 13 of that letter. He writes to his followers these words, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Clearly, Paul believes that the God he worships, the God of the universe, has established all government authority, including the Roman authority. He's commanding his people all over the world to not riot, to live peacefully. And so I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it is illogical and unreasonable to believe that this man, my client Paul, would stir up riots. Now, these are very serious charges brought by Ananias, the high priest of Israel. And I thought it was important that you hear directly from Ananias. So as my next witness, I call Ananias, the high priest of Israel. Would you come to the witness stand, please, Ananias? Could you state your full name for the record, please, sir? Ananias. Ananias, what is your current occupation? I'm the high priest. Now, as the high priest, that means you're a member of the Sanhedrin. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, the Sanhedrin is the ruling body of Israel, is it not? Yes, it is. And there are 71 of you who make up the Sanhedrin. Is that right? Yes. Now, in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you have to be a Pharisee, don't you? Yes. And it takes many, many years of study to become a Pharisee, doesn't it? Yes, it does. You believe in the Bible that I was just talking about, don't you? I do. You believe that God inspired this book, don't you? Yes. So you have no objection to this being introduced in evidence, do you? No. All right. Now, as the high priest, that means the Pharisees elected you as their leader, does it not? Yes, it does. Now, there's many other Pharisees besides the Sanhedrin, correct? That's correct. There's 
It's an organization of men who are acknowledged as scholars and as lawyers, men who well know the law, correct? Correct. Now, as it turns out, you're acquainted with my client, the Apostle Paul, aren't you? I am. In fact, you knew him 30 years ago when he lived in Jerusalem, didn't you? Uh, Yes, I did. The truth of the matter is, Ananias that you were part of the group that admitted him into your organization called the Pharisees, weren't you? Yes. Now, besides memorizing the Law of Moses, the first five books, besides memorizing most of the Old Testament, a Pharisee actually has to live out the law, doesn't he? Yes. So this isn't a matter of just head knowledge to become a Pharisee, is it? No, it's not. In fact, you pride yourself on observing all the laws in the Old Testament, don't you? Yes, I do. And there are many laws in there. In fact, uh, by most counts, there's about 612 separate laws that you have to follow in the Old Testament, isn't there? That's correct. They involve things like what clothes you ought to wear, correct? Yes. The food you're allowed to eat. Yes. How you become ceremonially, ceremonially clean, things like that, correct? Yes, all of that. But they also talk about being an honest person, being a person of character and integrity, don't they? Yes, they do. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Moses says, don't bear false witness, doesn't it? That's correct. And Proverbs chapter 12, for instance, says that God detests lying lips. Is that correct? Yes. And so you would not admit anyone to be a Pharisee unless they lived out the law of God in a very faithful way, would you? No, I would not. You would not admit someone to be a Pharisee who is a liar, would you? No, I would not. So this recognition of Paul as a Pharisee was a recognition that he had impeccable character and that he told the truth, wasn't it? Yes. All right. Now, let's go to this charge that you brought against my client, Paul. And I believe charge number one says... First charge. Can you read that for us? Can you read this screen? We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. And that's a charge you brought, correct? That is correct. Now, you say all over the world. Can you give me one example of a city where he stirred up riots? Yes, in Thessalonica. All right. Now, Thessalonica, uh, in that moment is recorded in what we call the Bible. In Thessalonica, it's in what the country we now know as Greece, correct? That's correct. Now, that's approximately a thousand miles from Jerusalem, isn't it? Yes. The truth of the matter is, Ananias, you have never set foot in Thessalonica, have you? Well, please, your lawyer will have an opportunity to ask you questions. Please just answer my question. Have you ever set foot in Thessalonica? No, I have not. And so when you say that he stirred up riots all over the world, places like Thessalonica, that's just something you heard, isn't it? Yes, it is. Now, if a murder occurred here in Jerusalem and you heard about it, would that make you a witness to that murder? Uh, No, it would not. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this law that you have memorized and try to observe. The first five books of the Bible are the Law of Moses, correct? That's correct. And in that, Genesis 
it says that God created the heavens and the earth, right? Right. So you agree that he's all-powerful, right? Yes. He's all-wise. Yes. He's perfectly just, isn't he? Yes, he is. Now, in Genesis, it says that man rebelled against God, and so we live in a fallen world, don't we? Correct. But God laid out certain rules to try to help us have as just a law as possible, didn't he? Yes. And those laws are written in Deuteronomy, among other places, aren't they? Yes, they are. Well, I would like to take a look at some of the laws or one of the laws that God laid down in order to have a fair judicial system. Would that be all right with you? Sure, that's fine. All right, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. And if you would read that for me, please. I think we'll have it here on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Maybe we won't, all right? I seem to have forgotten. <laughs> well, I will, I will read that. Or actually, I'll have you read it here out of my Bible. If you can. Chapter 19, verse 15. Would you read that, please? One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Is that right? That's correct. Now, just to refresh our memory, when you hear about something, that doesn't make you a witness, does it? No, it does not. You have to see it with your own two eyes, correct? Yes. When God laid down this law that something had to be established, that a crime had to be established by two or three witnesses, he was talking about people who actually saw that event, wasn't he? Yes. Not someone who heard about it, correct? That's correct. You brought these charges, correct? Yes. And the truth of the matter is, you never saw Paul stir up a riot anywhere, did you? No, I did Personally not. Personally saw him. I did not. That's all I have for you. You're dismissed. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I hate to use such strong language, but Ananias is a disgrace to the title of high priest. I understand he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But for him to try to circumvent the law of God, the law that he's invested his life in, to try to get around that is disgraceful. You see, there are no witnesses. There's not been a single eyewitness to this allegation. But I am going to bring eyewitnesses again through this book we call the Bible because there were two eyewitnesses to what happened in Thessalonica. And Paul and Silas were there, and they were the eyewitnesses. And this event was recorded by Dr. Luke. Many of you know Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke was a prominent physician in Jerusalem. He left the practice of medicine to become a historian. And he is noted around the world as one of the most diligent, accurate historians of this era. And he sought out all information he could, and he documented this in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. And hopefully we have that. And if not, then I'll have to read it. Okay. 
And here's what it says. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As the custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scripture, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace and formed a mob and started a riot in the city. That's evidence from two eyewitnesses. The Jews were jealous. They got bad characters, and they're the ones that stirred up the riot. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, based upon the character of Paul as testified to by Ananias, based upon his writings that he sent to all his followers to follow government authority, based upon the total failure to comply with God's law to bring eyewitnesses, and based upon the two eyewitnesses we do have, this charge should be summarily dismissed. And I'm sure when you deliberate, you will do that. Now let's move on to the second charge. The charge that Paul was promoting a false religion, a sect. See, what this charge really comes down to is a different view that the Jews have of this man, Jesus. The Jews say that Jesus was just a man, that he was a criminal that was executed by the Roman authorities on the cross. Paul says something completely different. Paul says that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, that he was God in the flesh, and that he came to earth, and that he wasn't sent to the cross by the Roman authorities that he voluntarily went to the cross and died this horrific, painful death to pay for the sins of you and me. That's Paul's testimony. That's his perspective. Now, how did that happen? You see, because Paul was himself a Pharisee, as Ananias talked about. What changed in Paul? He used to persecute Christians. He used to go around the world and execute Christians. What changed? And what I submit to you that changed was that he had an encounter with the living God of the universe. And that encounter, again, is documented in the Bible. And it's documented at Acts chapter 26, verse 15. I don't know if we're... And there it is. And so Paul was on the road to Damascus to persecute and execute Christians in Damascus. And this is what happened. A lightning bolt hits. Paul is blinded, and he asks, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. Now, this is his testimony. And some of you may be thinking, well, you know, 
when somebody's life is on the line, maybe they can come up with a, a story. Maybe they could lie. Maybe he's just a con artist. Maybe he's going around the world trying to make a living, living off these people and gathering money. Maybe he doesn't really believe this. Well, I want to suggest to you that that is not supported in the Scripture in any way. In fact, we know what his life was like after this. He went around the world, and everywhere he went almost, just like the Jews in Thessalonica, he would go into synagogues, as was his custom, as that Scripture says, and the Jews would be upset. And on five different occasions... Because he was testifying to the truth of Jesus, they took him out and gave him the 40 lashes less one. They flogged him. Five times, folks. You cannot be a con artist. You cannot be promoting something that isn't true and endure that kind of punishment. Most people who have been flogged say they would rather have died. It took so long to recover. Often it took months to recover. Often people were, were crippled even by one flogging, and yet Paul never wavered. He continued to spread the truth of the gospel of Christ. And I want to submit to you that his actions speak far louder even than the words that he spoke recorded here in the book of Acts. Another question you may have. Well, that's great. He had this encounter. Has, has anybody else had this kind of encounter? I mean, if, this is, if Jesus really is alive, if he's resurrected from the dead, is this something that happens to other people? And my answer, again, is an emphatic yes. In fact, millions, if not billions of people would testify that they have had an encounter with the living God of the universe. And I brought just one person to testify along those lines. This young man some of you may know. His name is Zach Gibson. Now, Zach and his wife Megan are in the younger generation, the millennials. And my perception of the millennials is they're all about the YOLO, right? You only live once. Let's live for today. Let's make as much money as we can. Let's have great experiences, accumulate wealth. You know, just live it up. Well, what do you do with someone who rejects that? Why would anyone reject it? That's what our culture is pushing. Because the truth of the matter is, Zach is living much like Paul. He's laying down his one life to spread the truth of the gospel. He and Megan have had an encounter with the living Christ and it has changed their life. And because actions speak louder than words, I asked Zach to be here and tell you a little bit about how he is spending his life. So the next witness I'm calling is Zach Gibson. Zach, would you come out here, please? Have a seat. Could you state your name for the record, please, sir? Zach Gibson. And Zach, can you tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury a little bit about your background and how you're spending your life? Yes. Well, it's an honor to be here to share a little bit about my wife um, and I and our journey, our encounter with the Lord, and those things that we've been able to be a part of since then, um, and maybe even how you can be a part of as well. Um, to first, to share a little bit, uh, my wife and I, we have two kids, um, Everett four, uh, Thea is 18 months, and we have learned in our, account, in our en- encounter, in our journey, how to be a family and what that means as we continue to follow the Lord. 
Um, exactly what we do, we're kind of joining in um, with something that has started back, um, way, that has been in place way before us, actually. Uh, way back in 1960, there was a man named Lauren Cunningham. Um, has anybody heard of YWAM or Youth with the Mission? Okay, a couple people. I just want to share a little bit of the history of how this began. How this began. Um, Lauren Cunningham, he was about 20 years old, and he was given a vision by God. And in, as a vision is kind of this picture in his mind. And what he saw was a picture of the, of the world. All the continents were represented there. Um, and what he saw were, the, were waves that were started on the outside of the continents, and they kept going inward until they took over the entire continent. And what, as God continued to show him and speak to him, he saw that those waves were young people that were being sent all around the world and carrying the fire of God, the love of God in their hearts, and they were taking over entire continents with, with the gospel. Does that sound like something that our world needs today? Um, well, if you look at this picture, this is, um, this is YWAM today. These are all different campuses that are um, around the world, and these are training centers. These are places um, where students are being discipled and then being sent out to share the gospel of the world into the world. Um, and my wife and I, to give a little sneak peek of what we do, we're based in Tyler, Texas, just about five hours north of here, northeast. Um, and we have what we call discipleship training schools. And so these are for um, students that are 18, have graduated high school. There's really not an age limit um, for the, how it goes up. My, parent, my wife and I, we've had opportunities to invest into parents, into families as they've come to be a part of these discipleship camps. Um, and basically what it looks like is we have five months on our campus. Three months is what we call a lecture phase. And so we have teachers from all over the world that come and share and take a week on each topic. Um, nature and character of God, one week. Holy Spirit, one week. Worship, the atonement, whatever. Um, and so we dive into and we discover, we go, we uh, discover who God is in this journey. And we are simply there to invest and to help disciple, help walk them as they continue in this journey, and then for the last two months of the five months, we go overseas. We take them overseas to help put into practice those things um, that we've learned. Um, so you could be doing several different kinds of uh, ministry all over around the world, and we've been able to be a part of that. Um, what I would say is probably about 70% of the, probably about 30% of those students that are discipled and trained with us actually stay within ministry to continue with what we do. But the other 70% um, go back into the work field that they have, that they have passion for. And um, that is really the heart, the passion of my wife and I. What we um, Have anybody heard of the seven spheres of influence before? Um, these are seven mountains or seven spheres of influence that affect the culture and the society. Uh, if you guys could read those, family, religion, education, all of those that are represented there. Um, it's our heart, and like I said, 70% of those who come and are grounded and founded in their relationship with God, with who God is, with who they are, and then we send them back into these seven spheres, these, work, these workplaces. Um, so if we, if we go into these spheres with a biblical mindset, if we don't have a biblical mindset, then what can come out of these spheres is also unbiblical. But if we have a biblical mindset, then what we can see comes out of arts and entertainment and how we run our government and our media and everything that is listed here, um, it's, it's, it's things that honor God. Amen? Um, and so 
my wife and I, this is our passion, is to be able to invest and disciple those that, and then send them out. We're not all called to be in full-time missions or to drop everything that we're doing and travel across the world, um, but we are all called to live missionally. And that is our heart, is to invest a missions mindset into these students as they go back into their work field. Um, and so we have a... Uh, this is something that I have some more information in if you're interested in, in being a part of. Um, and also because we have more of a personal relationship with this church, um, our family's here, there's people that we know here as well. Um, the, things that the, uh, the things that the ministry that my wife and I, our family, is a part of, um, we have to raise our open funds in order to be a part of that. And so, um, yeah, I would just make that just naturally sharing, hey, church, church body, here's a need, and if you would like to be a part of that, I would love to share some more information with you at the end. Um, thank you. This is what my wife and I, after having our encounter with the Lord, this is what we've chosen to do. Thank you. Yeah. You may be dismissed. Thank you. Jan and I are honored to be part of the team that helps support Zach and Megan and what they are doing around the world. And Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, what they are doing is, to the Jews and Ananias, absurd. Promoting a false religion. It's insane. What Paul the Apostle, my client, and Zach and Megan Gibson are doing makes no sense at all. Unless... Jesus did rise from the dead. Unless they had an encounter with the risen Christ. You see, if this is the end, if it really is YOLO, you only live once, then you ought to, as my client Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he wrote these words, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. If there is no resurrection of the dead then Christians are the most pitied of all people. But what if? What if you don't only live once? You see, my client Paul and Zach and Megan believe something else, and this is what you need to deliberate about. This is the second charge. Is this a false religion? Paul Megan, Zach, would say no, that there is a resurrection of the dead, that you don't only live once, that there is another life, and that living to spread the truth of Jesus Christ around the world is the most satisfying life you can have in this world and will be a satisfying addition to what they will experience forever with their Father in heaven. You see... If there is another world as they believe, then what they're doing isn't insane. There was a great missionary, Jim Elliott, who was murdered by the people he was trying to share the gospel with. But before he went, knowing that these were a violent people, people were saying he was a fool. And Jim Elliott said these words, A person is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's what Zach and Megan are doing and my client, the Apostle Paul, are doing. Living in a way 
that they will gain something that they cannot lose. This case is coming to a close, and you're going to have to decide, based upon the testimony, whether this is a false religion or not. And I would suggest to you that the testimony is powerful, the verbal testimony. But what I want to suggest is that lives lived in pursuit of something is far more powerful. The great philosopher Henry David Thoreau said these words, Do not tell me things, for all the while who you are stands over you in thunders, so that I cannot hear what you say to the contrary. What I want to suggest to you is what is thundered in this courtroom this morning is the very lives of my client Paul and Zach and Megan Gibson. The time has come to pass this baton, to pass this case into the hands of you, the jury. You will be deciding the destiny of my client, Paul. But in a larger sense, you aren't deciding his destiny. It doesn't matter what verdict you bring. As far as Paul is concerned, he said to live as Christ and to die as gain. He believes with all his heart that you will find him innocent of these charges. But you are not deciding his destiny this morning. He knows his destiny. But make no mistake about it. You are deciding a destiny this morning. Your own. There was a dramatic moment recorded in the Gospel of Luke. Questions were arising about who Jesus was. And he turned to the people who were there. And he said these words recorded at Luke chapter 9, verse 20. Who do you say I am? That question has echoed down through the centuries. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? How you answer that question will determine your destiny. I want to call one more witness this morning. The witness is me, Al Hassler. Because I'm an eyewitness. I'm an eyewitness to a great miracle. I'm an eyewitness to me, the greatest miracle I could ever imagine because it happened to me. I was a YOLO guy, living for the world, eat, drink, and be merry. For 36 years, I had it all. My life was a continuing, continuous party. But I was selfish, angry, arrogant, bitter, mean-spirited. I moved out, was going to divorce my wife, and she had an encounter with the living Christ. I heard about it. I saw her, and I saw the life and truth of Christ in her very countenance. And because of that, I started examining the truth of the Scripture. I started reading the Bible. I started reading the Gospels. And I had an encounter with the living Christ. He is alive. He has risen from the dead. You can have an encounter with the God of the universe. 
And here's what I want to say to you folks, that as a result of that, a miracle happened. And I went from that selfish, angry, arrogant, bitter person to the person standing before you has more joy and peace and satisfaction that I can ever imagine. A marriage that I would wish for any of you. And so I would join with my client Paul and Zach and Megan and say that this is not a false religion. That Jesus really was the Messiah who died for your sins and mine. And that is the truth the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me, God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that Jesus lives, that 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 grave, that tomb was empty. And Father, I thank you that I get to journey with him every single day and to know his love and his goodness and know his truth. Thank you, Father, and I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.